Susan, let's start with ICAC. As we were being reminded, in New South Wales we have one, but federally we don't. And we've had a lot of talk for a long time about the prospect of some sort of federal ICAC, but it never seems to happen. Why is that? Well, I think it's because we've got a government who makes lots of announcements and makes lots of promises, but never actually delivers any of them. And we see that at all sorts of levels. A Federal Integrity Commission is one of those, where they promise that they will do one only after years of pressure from Labor and the Greens and a whole lot of people who think that you can't run a government without having someone identifying corruption but nothing has happened. In spite of, I saw comments recently from Christian Porter as Attorney-General, it's, oh, well, it's underway. The independents say they haven't seen hide nor hair of anything that looks like a piece of legislation that might create it. And the truth would be they don't have a commitment to it at no, all. I, well, I get the impression that in their heart of hearts, no, they don't have a commitment. And is that because really they're frightened of what it might find out. Why else would they be afraid of it? To be caught out, their own people caught out. You look at the number of front benches that we have raised questions about. Angus Taylor is a prime example, yet there he sits on the front bench. No full inquiry or investigation, no transparency about any investigation into some of the things that he himself has disclosed to Parliament. I thought it was interesting this week uh, Jason Felinski, who is a backbencher who took over from Bromwell Bishop in her seat. Jason Felinski was out there loud and proudly saying, this New South Wales ICAC's a kangaroo court. It's outrageous and it shouldn't be allowed to operate. Now, what we are seeing in New South Wales is a really effective stripping away of the secrecy of a whole lot of decision-making processes that have occurred. And we absolutely need to have the same thing at a federal level, whether the government wants it or not. Do, do you think, incidentally, that Gladys should go, from what we know so far? I think it is very hard to see how she can retain her position and the respect of the community, given that it sounds like I've heard some of the evidence today, it certainly appears that Mr Maguire shared quite a lot with her. And of course, what we're hearing is what was on the tapes. We're not hearing what was said off the tapes. <laughs> and certainly not. So, so I absolutely support the New South Wales Labor position on this and, and I'll look forward to listening to, to Trish, who's of course been down there and been, sure. uh, been very close to it this week. Now, the Centre for Public Integrity says, and I quote, the government's proposed Commonwealth Integrity Commission, their version of ICAC, would be the weakest integrity commission in the country. It would not be able to investigate the Crown Casino scandal, the allegations of conflict of interest, as you mentioned, about Angus Taylor's family business, or potential breaches of Christopher Pine or Julie Bishop of the Ministerial Code of Contact. If we, even if we got it as it's so far constructed, it'd be bloody hopeless, wouldn't it? So, so a lot of listeners, and I think you guys will be familiar with the expression a Clayton's event or a Clayton's decision. Now, this will be the ICAC you have when you're not having an ICAC, the integrity commission you have when you're not having an integrity commission, based on what has come out so far. One of the really interesting things that's happened today is that there's a federal police investigation into the Western Sydney land deal. Now, that was a prime example of something that should be investigated by an integrity commission. Mm -hmm. It's now, which would have been something where a lot becomes transparent. Uh, you know, when you sell land 
and pay when you buy land for thirty million dollars. Thirty, yeah, thirty million dollars. It's worth three million dollars by your own estimate. You really want a transparent look at that to unpack who made the decision and what was going on at the time. Well, now it's going to be in the AFP hands, and right now that's oh, it? it's the so the federal police has announced today that it is investigating that land deal. So that's just broken this afternoon and their rationale is they're looking for potential criminal offences relating to that land deal, uh, the Leppington Triangle as it's called. Well, just the the incredible smell coming from the land around Badgerys Creek Airport, isn't it? I mean, that land, as I understand it, they wanted it for the year 2050, so I don't think I'll be on that plane, but in the meantime... They leased it back for virtually peppercorn rent. They did. And, yeah, they they got in early. 32 years early was the (laughs) the land deal. Uh, And yet you've got the Deputy Prime Minister saying people should think that it was a bargain. Now, there's stuff going on that we need to know about. What's been really interesting, and Senator Doug Cameron, when he was a senator, pointed this out, and he's tweeted it this week, and I've had a chat to him about it. They kept pushing the Western Sydney component of Senate estimates to 10 o'clock at night or putting it way down the list so that the night would be gone before you actually got to it. So as an opposition, we have had no opportunity to scrutinise closely any of the decisions made about Western Sydney Airport when it comes to tenders, buying land, and and the big money stuff that's happening now. So chances are the same thing will happen again, Senate estimates, in this coming Senate estimates in the next week. They'll be able to say, well, there's a federal police inquiry now, so we can't talk about a lot of things. It'll be under investigation. But this has been going on for years. So there's a few things we need, and Western Sydney, which all of us recognise is going to have a profound impact on our community mm-hmm. when we get 24-hour flights. Absolutely. We need to know that, that, is not, that people are not making obscene amounts of money illicitly out of the land deals that are being done. And will we get an integrity commission in time to do that? I doubt it. Will it have the powers to look into it? Not till Labor comes to power. It's well, only, I- you know, my belief is that we might get something but it'll be a Clayton's Integrity Commission and it will need to be really beefed up by the time, if and when we we get to government. Because as it is at the moment, Susan, what it is is something... We, we know the things it won't do and it wouldn't... It would have only limited jurisdiction to investigate public servants, contractors and MPs. And another concern is that it would have no ability to hold public hearings. Any investigation will be held behind closed doors without public knowledge. It's the same sort of secrecy you've just been talking about. Yeah, and look at the strength of the New South Wales ICAC. It has the power to look into politicians. And I've got to tell you, it only takes one or two dodgy MPs to give all of us a bad name, and we want them out. Every politician wants them out every decent politician. Um, So you've got to wonder why people are so hesitant to give something teeth and to to actually make it happen. But as I say, it is this government's track record to make a big uh, hullabaloo about something and pat themselves on the back for it and then do absolutely zero. Another concern with with this Clayton's body that uh, they're talking about would have no ability to exercise arrest warrants, no confirmation that compelling witnesses or using surveillance powers will be allowed. Another one... And that, and that means no, no taped, taped recordings of, of conversations, which is actually 
so revealing. Uh, As so we there's found a, with Daryl, yeah. Indeed. Uh, inability to make findings. Public wouldn't know the outcome unless a case was successfully prosecuted in court. So it's yeah. secrecy again. Uh, it is, absolutely. And, and, you know, a lot of things happen through an integrity commission that are not found to be able to be prosecuted criminally. Now, you look at the, the Premier Barry O'Farrell... He, it was as a result of a, an ICAC inquiry, there was not found, there were no recommendations for criminal proceedings, but it looked at his integrity and he made the call over, you know, based on the rece receiving a bottle of red that he should step down. So it isn't, and a, great, a really good thing about an integrity commission, it isn't just about criminal behaviour. No. or corrupt, mm. illegal behaviour. It's also about integrity. And standards and... Yes, yeah. and we really need, more than ever, when we're battling something like COVID, that where, where governments ask the community to do things that they would normally not be asked to do, to limit their rights, to restrict their movement, to financially suffer. When governments are expecting people to respect those calls and, and requests, we need to actually more than ever have governments being trusted. And Well, that's what we that's hear about these days a lot, yeah. public opinion saying trust in politicians. Yeah. And as you say, for the decent, honest ones, and it's happened on the Labor side as well, OB Absolutely. hurt Labor terribly, didn't yes, it? Yes, I mean, and we were so pleased there was an integrity commission that w could expose that, you mm. know, reveal it, dig into it and find evidence that perhaps people had suspicions about but had no capacity to see if there was actually any, any fire where there was smoke. And clearly with, with him there was and he absolutely should have gone through that process. And where there's way. not criminal conduct, people can be reluctant to raise something because you're potentially defaming someone or... Yeah. So you need to have a body that you can... Yeah. Have, have it investigated. Do you know, it fits with me when I think about the legislation we deal with federally, the legislation for whistleblowers, there are, there are also real concerns about people's ability to be a whistleblower. And, you know, we saw the investigation into the ABC journalists. Unfortunately, Dan Oakes, it's been revealed, will not be prosecuted. That's only just this week. Only it just this week. Been sweating on that for oh, it's years. It's been absolutely, and I've spoken to another one of the journalists involved, and the, the pressure is terrible on them for simply doing their job. So how about we get a set of rules that protects people who are doing their job and the whistleblowers who are talking to them, but we allow for an expose of the people who are rorting the system. Mm -hmm. And it isn't just a land deal. It is decisions that ministers make, like in the sports rorts affair, how those decisions were made. There's multiple, out of this budget, multiple big buckets of money with not very clear criteria about how the use of it's going to be decided. Uh, and we are really concerned that there's a potential for sports rorts on steroids. So, Susan, a Labor government, what would you do about this? What would your integrity commission, what sort of powers would that have? Well, uh, uh, is there actually a yeah, policy? Uh, yeah, well, and I don't feel like Mark Dreyfus will probably be able to rattle you off an answer of all the, all the different powers, but it's something that genuinely gives powers to investigate. I think the model of the New South Wales ICAC is a really good model, and I can't see why that isn't the starting point for anyone. 
Is, is that actually a policy as yet, or is that one? Oh, absolutely. But in the lead-up to the last yeah. election, long before the last election, actually, remember, we had quite a few policies at the last election. <laughs> <laughs> Not everyone was across all of them. But, yes, early on in the previous parliament, we made an, we made an announcement about it and called on the government to implement one. And under, uh, eventually, under pressure, they said they would. This is Rights, Rorts and Rants. We're talking to Susan Templeman, member for Macquarie. Talk about that last election, Susan. In the end, you just got across the line. Well, is, is this the most marginal seat in the country? It is the most marginal seat in the country. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And if you look at the swings that were experienced, you know, I, in other seats, if I'd had one of those sorts of swings, you'd be you wouldn't be talking to me now as the member for Macquarie. Um, but we were able to hold the seat with a very small swing against us a 2% swing against us as opposed to the sort of 4 or 6% swings or for some people 14% swings that they saw. So we bucked the trend as we often have in this seat. No, but you had to fight for it right, right to the wire as they say uh, and yeah. um, it's, it's a tough seat because my reading of it is it's really two seats. It there's is the mountains two seats. and there's the Hawkesbury. Yeah. And basically the mountains like you and Hawkesbury don't. That's right. And why I don't the, why does the Hawkesbury like I, you? I don't it? take it personally, <laughs> either the like or the no, dislike. I don't blame um, but if you think about the two seats, we've got the seat, the state seat of Blue Mountains, roughly, uh, which is a really solid Labour voting seat. Every now and again there's a Liberal over the years, but really, by and large, it's held by Labour. Mm. And then you've got the seat of the state seat of Hawkesbury, which, when you look at the data, is one of the safest Liberal seats in the New South Wales government uh, or in the New South Wales Parliament. Safest Liberal seat outside the North Shore. It is extraordinarily safe. And you bolt those together. And while I see many common values between the populations of each, there are also some significant differences in their their way of life, the um, things they do, the what they think, different education, focus, all those sorts of things make them a real melting pot of what we've got in the rest of the country. Mm. So it kind of isn't surprising that a seat like mine, when an election is quite close, my seat is quite close, when a swing is on, my seat will show it. So it's a fascinating region I, I to represent. I'm sure it is. What, what though, I've heard recently, I think you heard it because you're at the same meeting, someone from GetUp saying that the demographics in the Hawkesbury area are changing in that there's another about 300 people a year moving into the area. That yeah. same thing is happening in the mountains necessarily, is it? No, no. Uh, the demographics are changing and new people are coming in and they're coming from other parts of the western suburbs or from f there's some immigration. And I don't know, I don't think we know what that means, except that they are embracing the Hawkesbury and moving into sometimes new developments. I'm seeing a lot of younger people moving into the Hawkesbury. So you would hope that the younger you are, the more you can see the need for action on climate change, which is not going to be something the Liberals ever do. Mm -hmm. And we'll have to be, you know, we have to have action on climate change. So hopefully the messages will resonate with those groups. But I, I agree with you on that, but I mean, wasn't the problem for Labor at the, the last election that Bill Shorten's leader was seen to be trying to play it both ways on coal? 
you know, talking to different constituencies at a different time, and you still have mm. a, a bit of a split in the party about coal, not to mention gas. Yeah, certainly the Australian likes to make much of, of that issue. And we, within the party, we have a total conviction that there is ne a need for strong action on climate change, that there is no... That, that coal is with us now and will obviously continue to be for some time, but no one can see any viability in new coal-fired power, power stations and certainly no incentives to them to do that. So where it's really about well, who you incentivise. We have to incentivise renewables. They don't actually need incentives now. Mm. We have moved on so far. The industry, you know, politicians are, are back there at first base and the Investors industry... Investors don't want to invest in coal. No, <laughs> they have no interest to invest in coal and they haven't for a long time. They've been ahead of us. You know, in my previous life before being an MP, I worked with a lot of investment banks, giving, giving them advice. And, but what that allowed me was insight into their thinking. And for, I would say, for 15 years, they have been calling for action, as has the insurance industry, long before Kevin Rudd even started talking about it. Um, so I think the, what, I, what I remind people of is that what we did when we were last in, in power... We, Kevin worked very hard to get an, a carbon emissions program up and it was blocked by mm. the Liberals and the Greens. Mm. At that time, the Greens felt it wasn't good enough. Now, we can look back and go, that was a decade of lost carbon trading, a terribly, uh, an absolutely wasted decade. And, but within that same time frame, of course, when Julia was Prime Minister, she did legislate and we did get a carbon price. Not but, sorry, if we, but if we yeah. cut to the present, what would you say differentiates your policy on coal and gas from the coalition? We believe that renewables are the future. That's but the fundamental difference. Will the others have a role? Well, of course, you don't transition. But you're having at the moment to go along with the coalition on, on some of these things which Do environmentalists don't like? Oh, we have... Uh, I'm not sure if people have caught up in what happened in the last week. We have spoken out, or the last fortnight, very strongly against the new... the EPBC Act that the government's brought in. It's outrageous. Uh, this is changes to the Environmental Act that comes into play when these new projects are assessed. And the government has said it wants to transfer the power to the states. And the recommendations to them were, sure, transfer some power to the states, but set an exceptionally high standard that they have to meet and then have an EPA, and, and federal EPA. Now, they've just said we're just going to give it to the states. The big danger in that is that these projects will not have the same environmental standards that they, or the, as high environmental standards as they should have. We should be raising the standards on projects and having consistency around the country on them. We should also be incentivising renewables and that just isn't happening. So where there is one loud voice in the Labor Party who, uh, Joel Fitzgibbon, who seems to um, be riding a different horse to the rest of us, <laughs> well, quite frankly. He's got frankly. a different constituency, hasn't he, with a lot of people with um, do you know what interests. I, do you know what I think happened with Joel? Joel had a really big swing against him in the last yeah, election. He got a fright. I think he got a fright. Now, he should come and, and walk in my shoes where <laughs> I'm the most <laughs> marginal seat and 
are throwing out the policies that will give our kids a future is the most short-sighted thing you could do. And there is a, it's been pretty clear, you listen to what Anthony Albanese and Mark Butler say, and Mark Butler is going to, if he becomes, if we win government, uh, he will have the most nuanced and comprehensive approach to climate change that you can expect. I think we've got just more and more sophisticated about how we do it. Back a decade ago, we just thought there's one tool and we put a price on carbon. You know, it's the same, the way we apply it's the same. Last election, we had this total package which recognised differences in different industries and worked with those industries to get the most effective outcome. Uh, so I have absolute confidence that the policies that we take will be will meet the targets. They may have to be adapted because I think targets are going to change okay. uh, globally. We've got a new, you know, we've got the next round of global talks coming up, and we absolutely have to see what the world agrees at those talks. And I just wish we were there having a voice well, rather than the Morrison government. I'm <laughs> sure a lot of listeners would agree with that, Susan. Just changing the topic, many months ago, Fair Work Australia was asked to investigate allegations of yes. exploitation of overseas workers working for the Escarpment Group, which people know is Lillian Fells, the Hydro, Echoes and others. And I know you had concerns about what was happening there and raised them in, in Parliament. I did. But we haven't heard what happened to that Fair Work investigation, have you? No, we haven't. And in fact, our, in our follow-ups, we were advised that we would receive a final report on it and that hasn't been supplied and we continued to ask for that. I am very hopeful that there'll be some transparency around that. At the time, I said if... It, there, you know, there was some, there were, the stories coming from the um, student workers were, I certainly wouldn't want my kids working well, in those environments, in that, in that you, environment. You call them student workers. I, I mean, I've heard different stories about, mm. and maybe there were different categories of worker there. Indeed. Know, life's sometimes a bit more complicated. Indeed. But basically, to remind listeners, my memory of it was this. You could be an overseas worker working in, in one of those escarpment group hotels and you might be getting the award wage, but over $400 a week was taken out in rent for a small room you shared with another person and board. I mean, that would be some of the most expensive rental place <laughs> in the mountains, wouldn't it? That, that yeah. was the nub of it, wasn't it? That was certainly one of the reports that was made. Now, I haven't seen the direct evidence that was given to Fair Work. So they well, do... this was all alleged. Yes, that's say. right. This is just... These were the allegations that were made and the reports that were published in the papers around it. I had a, a confidential briefing with Fair Work about their investigation. It was in the early stages. They told me they were doing a full and complex investigation into the allegations that had been and the evidence that had been given to them. I think that's the language they... I'm trying to remember the exact set of words and, and my memory tells me it was uh, a, a like thorough and complex investigation. Yeah. What, what, what will you be doing next on that? Story? So we have, we have followed up with yeah. Fair Work and said, you did tell us that we would be provided with a report. We asked for an interim report at a, you know, we said, well, look, we know when you've got a certain point, can you give us an update? And they refused to do that and they said, we don't do that until we have the final report. So but they have to give us a final report, don't they? No, I or don't. Do they? <laughs> I don't think they have to, 
they committed to and I hope they keep their word. Okay. So and that, you know, they, these, th- these tourism facilities are very significant, high-profile, well-known facilities and they should be a really a part of the mountains that we can be really proud of. Um, so I'm looking forward to that report to have reassurance that the highest possible standards for workers are maintained. And there could be a danger with the pandemic stopping international students from coming in that it'll all just fade away and get put on a back burner. Thanks to your reminder and our follow-up, we will be able to report back to you. Because I think one of the things there is, let's let's be honest, we, we know the union covering this area is not very active up here. And then these are overseas workers and really a lot of them what they want is PR permanent residency. So they're not likely to rock the boat, are they? No. In the course of trying to understand the sorts of circumstances that people might have brought people and they might have found themselves in in these situations, I spoke with one of the church groups who do a lot of advocacy for foreign workers in Australia. And the themes were consistent with what we've seen around backpackers doing work in rural areas and that is an unwillingness to speak out because they so desperately need the uh, approval of their employer to be able to maintain their migration status. Mm. Uh, And so it leads to a whole lot of lack of protections and huge vulnerability. And clearly in the backpacker case we've seen exploitation of that. Of, of backpackers and terrible conditions, sexual assaults, all sorts of things. Now, I don't for one minute think that that is every no. every a- agricultural uh, every employer, provider who, yeah. Yeah, who but it's, wants but it backpackers. Quite a lot. But there's enough to say, hey, there's a problem here. What I think will be interesting is with COVID and far fewer people coming into the country, well, no one coming in, is this call for people to young people to do a gap year and this has been really promoted by the government that young people should do a gap year, go fruit picking. Well, I, I wonder whether that is going to have a benefit of leading to higher standards, that the accommodation we might think is okay for someone from a developing country, we realise it's not quite going to cut it for someone from the North Shore who's having a, a, back, a gap year. <laughs> okay, so in this last section of the interview, let's move on to childcare, because that is one of Labor's big promises. Yeah. Tell us about it. Well, this was one of our budget reply. You know, we were really disappointed with the government that the budget, it's a trillion dollars and there wasn't a cent extra for childcare. A trillion dollars of debt, you know, more debt than this country has ever imagined. Interestingly, a third of that debt was accrued prior to COVID hitting. So the government can't tell us that this is all COVID because a third of it was pre-COVID. But one of the things that happens in childcare is there's a cap on the amount of subsidy, an annual cap. You can only get a certain amount of money each year towards your childcare. It's $10,560 a year. And at a certain point in the year, depending on how much childcare you use and how much subsidy you get at any given time, people run out of the cap. They, they get reach the cap, so they, for the rest of the year, they don't have subsidised childcare. Uh, and that leads to a whole lot of consequences. So we see the benefits in scrapping the cap, lifting the subsidy to 90%, so making essentially childcare a universally accessible service. One of the things it means is that 
Some people who might not need it as much will get it, but the people who really need it will absolutely benefit from it. And that means that 97% of families, by our calculations, will save up to $3,000 a year on their childcare. And that is a game changer for a family where the second income earner might actually not be better off because they're paying childcare once they lose the subsidy. What it means now is women have said to me, I don't, I was asked to work a fourth day or a fifth day, it's just not worth my while. Mm. You know, it's already a hassle to have to get kids out the door and do all of that, let alone if it's not giving you any financial benefit. But of course, there's a price you pay as a woman for doing that. If you, if it is the woman in the relationship who is the second income earner, you, you're getting less superannuation. Uh, you're less likely to be sought after for promotion if you're only working part time, and you're really limiting your career while you're doing this. Now, not everyone wants to work full time, so no one's saying that they have to. But we know that this can be a real game changer for families. But even for families, if you look at the gendered wage gap is based on full-time earnings, not part-time or it's based on full-time earnings. If a woman's earning less than her male partner, it doesn't make financial sense for the family, for the higher earning person to give up that couple of days work. It makes more sense for the lower earning person to do it. Yeah. Yeah. The the other thing in there, and you, you won't be surprised to hear this, will you? It's going to cost a lot of money. How is it going to be paid for? But there is an economic argument saying that if more, and it is mostly women, could work, it's actually better for the economy. In the long run, it actually works for the economy as well. It'll increase the participation of women in the economy and it will also increase productivity. So the, the investment is really neither here nor there when it comes down to it. it. I think we've got to stop asking how we're going to pay for it. In a lot of for a lot of things right now, that was a full. It's a false um, it's premise. Actually, it's actually funny coming from a government that used to say that a lot, and now has learned it can put huge amounts of money. <laughs> that's right. Oh, so, look, uh, unbelievable. So. We're not so worried about the quantum as much as about the quality of the spend. Mm. If you are spending money, investing it in in people, and as a result, that's going to lead to greater participation in the workforce, greater productivity, those sorts of things, that's an investment. If you're just tossing it at people to make them vote for you, well, that's that's a rort. And so there, it's the quality of the spend, and we do question the quality of the government spend in the budget. Mm. Now, the the other thing, big one, is aged care. Now, government, as far as I could see, didn't do anything about the aged care facilities. I think a bit for care in the home, but for the facilities, which is, we know, huge problem and you would know in your own constituency you must hear stories of all sorts and we know for our own members who, who work in those places often on very low pay you know these are some of the the heroes of the front line not getting a reward for their for their work but i gather that labor was criticized as well particularly from the health services union for not actually doing enough we've made the point that the budget in reply isn't an alternate budget right. we don't We don't present an alternate budget and say, okay, here's tally it all up, these are the things. The budget in the reply speech is about identifying some of the things we would do differently. We're already on the record on aged care, calling on the government to invest. Uh, There there can be no doubt that we will be supporting any investment the government does into aged care facilities, but it would be a high priority for us. Let me put it another way, Susan. 
I don't, and I don't blame the Labour Party for not putting out all their policies now. You know, you'll probably get cut to ribbons by the Murdoch press, amongst other things. But by the time of the next election, will there be more for aged oh, care? Yeah. Yes, um, because we will have had the Royal Commission. There's already things we know we could do better. Um, and we've re already released an eight-point plan on aged care. Now, I'm not going to give you all the eight points. That's all right. Uh, but some of them around, are around transparency of the, in, of the spend, the federal government spend into aged care. Because right now, aged care providers don't have to tell you how they've spent no, taxpayers' money. I didn't realise this for a long time until no. one of our members, Warren Ross, who works in aged care, told me that a lot of people don't realise that the federal government provides most of the money. It does. It doesn't have to account the people who get that money don't no. have to account for how they spend it. I mean, that's no. incredible, really. It, it is extraordinary. And actually, if you think about it, it's not just the amount that you see that goes directly to the facility. It's also the residents, if they're on a pension or part pension, their Centrelink payment, their pension payment goes into it as well. So actually, the whole system is dependent on the government. And this nonsense in Victoria that about aged care, aged care is 100% a federal responsibility. So we think there are things the government could do. And so there's that sort of transparency piece. That doesn't cost very much. You could do that now. The other One of the other key things, though, is to increase the staff ratios, increase the, um, the minimum that you have to have as a very, as a very sure. first step. At the very least, increase the minimum staff numbers that you need. Mm -hmm. And the other thing within that is one of the, I think, Deb, it was HSU members told us that if you're working in aged care, you're getting less pay than a person who's standing on the welcome mat at, at Bunnings. And you know which person's under more pressure, don't you? Well, you know the comparison I like to use is that the uh, zookeepers at Taronga Zoo feeding the animals get paid more than aged care workers. And now that's not that they're not doing a really valuable job and that they're highly skilled. It's a caring role, but we're more, more willing to see higher salaries go to people caring for our animals than we are for our grandparents. Yeah. Uh, so or our, you know, in my case, my father. So my father's moved into aged care during COVID and that's been a real eye-opener for me. Wonderful people around him. But I can see that the system runs on, on very thin numbers and there is so much we could do to enrich the lives of people who are living in aged care, unlike the way what the Tony Abbott implied that they're just in there to die, which was a, dis a disgraceful mm. way of describing yeah, it. Tony. And some lines the minister has, has said similar things and the prime minister has inferred similar things that he, the prime minister describes it as pre-palliative. Now, there is no such thing as pre-palliative. It's not a, a, a medical um, concept. There's nothing palliative about it. People are still alive and they deserve... And it's their home. It's their home. They deserve whatever richness we can provide to their lives. So I feel... I was already um, a very passionate advocate for improvements in aged care. I've been on the board of a small not-for-profit aged care provider in the Hawkesbury and got insight when Labor mm. was in government about what a difference the improvements were making and the ability to provide physio and a whole range of things. And I've now seen the changes and the pulling away of money from that system. A um, lot of it runs on the goodwill of the workers. And the volunteers. Yeah. 
whether that's and the families. family or yep. other people who go in. Our aged care workers are extraordinary. They do things that I'm not willing to do. Let's be brutal about it. They are just extraordinary human beings and they deserve so much more than they're getting. And to, for the government to say, to tick off aged care and say, oh, here's another, no. I think it was 10,000 no, I mean, home no. packages, it's just an absolute disgrace. In many ways, it is it's good to hear what you said mm. and uh, it's clear that a lot needs to be done still. But a couple of final questions yes. before we allow you to escape into the mountains. Mist, fog, watch out if you're on the road. <laughs> so, Not to Hawaii. Susan, ex-journalist yourself, former leader Kevin Rudd, saying we want a Royal Commission into Murdoch. What do you think about that? Uh, a lot look, of support for it, incidentally. I yeah, I, I get why people I get why people would be attracted to it, and the joys of not being prime minister means that Kevin Rudd can absolutely campaign around this. I have mixed feelings about it. I know some really great journos who work at News Limited. I agree, but there's also some very nasty ones. Well, uh, then and there's a nasty message that goes out from that media. Th that's right. So I think what we do need is clear standards that differentiate between what's news and what's comment, and all too often now. It used to be really clear. I mean, in, in the old days, <laughs> used to be really clear what the story was, what the reporting was versus what the commentary was. Uh, but I think that really gets um, lost in some papers. The, the Herald still does a pretty good job of separating. It's pretty clear Peter Harch is giving a view yeah. and other people are reporting the story. Mm. Um, so I do have mixed views. I mean, absolutely, I love to see people being active on the issues that they're passionate I mean, about. It's, it's not not helping your side of politics, is it, Murdoch? Generally, I mean. Oh no, that's right. No, that, oh absolutely. Oh gosh, I I read the Murdoch papers, so I know what my some of my constituents will be reading about, mm. and and understanding what the way they're the the lens through which they're hearing things and viewing the world, and it's very different. And no, you would not call it labour friendly mm. at all. And the is other thing it's not friendly to is the ABC for good commercial reasons. But I think that over many years it's gone on and it's having an effect. And who would have believed that the Liberal Party would actually come to a stage where they have a policy to sell off the ABC and people think, oh, they wouldn't do that. But I, I'm not so sure. The ABC, I mean, what do you think? I think it's in decline, I, sadly in decline. Oh, some of my, the people I studied journalism with and have worked with for over many years and, you know, so we're going back to the 1980s where we were young journos together, people like Philippa MacDonald uh, and a whole, uh, like, you can just go through, there's a litany of people who've left the ABC, Michael Troy, really great reporters who have put the story ahead of their own personal views and tried to change things to to help people in their own way as journos by telling people's stories. But the cuts to the ABC have ripped the heart out of it. So, what, what, what would... Well, last election we, we, we committed to putting back in the funding that had been taken out in that, in that, um, pre, by that previous government. It's impossible to say how much now needs to go into the ABC. Because I, you see, I, I, I think it affects so much of what they call the, the public discourse. It whether does. we're talking about climate change, whether we're talking about anything. It's not that, I mean, the ABC is accused by the Murdoch lot of being, being biased, but if there's any bias there, it, it's piddling compared to what's put out by Murdoch. So yeah. 
<laughs> it's causing huge amounts of damage in the country, I think. Oh, it so, is. I mean, it's all right for us to have these conversations yeah. like this, but mm. um, damage done. Oh, it's by terrible. Murdoch. And look, I've spoken in Parliament about this and about the rights of journalists to be able to report. All, all that whole range of issues. The first thing we need to see is a, a properly funded ABC that can report without, without fear of political interference. They, we can't constrain a public broadcaster. Uh, I, I often say to people, remember, it's not a government PR machine, which no, some... Look, if, if it's, it's not, doing its job... That's Whoever's right. in power is going to be upset by the ABC at some they stage. Are, that's right. It's they certainly happened with Labor a few times. Oh, and yeah. indeed, you know, in, in government, the ABC has been, as it should be, as I, wearing my journal hat, go, yeah, of course, you need to hold people to account. Just as we in opposition try to hold people to account, so we need a, a free and diverse media to do that. And it isn't just the dominance and the lens that the... Murdoch Media puts on things and the cuts to the ABC, it's also the undermining of regional broadcasting and regional voices. They are really struggling. The, our local Blue Mountains Gazette is still holding firm and has terrific journos who live locally and live within the community sure. they're reporting on. But in, in the Hawkesbury, the journalist days have been cut to three days a week. They're putting out two papers with, with a couple of journos on a couple of three days a week. Yeah and no resourcing, and a lot of really important stories are not being told. Absolutely. You'd be You're unlikely to see the Blackheath tunnel on the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald or the... Yeah, that's a good local story. It's that's a, a local terrific story. story yeah. and an important story. And, you know, they, they generally cover both sides. You know, they yeah. give people a voice. Do you know the other thing at the ABC? In the budget, there was no funding for emergency broadcasts. No dedicated... There's no additional funding recognising what a year the ABC had. Uh, and, and that's actually a life and death matter. You know, that's just not... Let's be. Well, you, let's be. You lost the house yourself. Indeed, yeah, and yeah. and at the time I was driving on the M4, getting back home to try and get home. I didn't realise my house was on fire at that moment. I was listening to Richard Glover doing emergency broadcasting. It was one of the key sources of information we had that afternoon, that Thursday afternoon, nearly a year ago. Oh my goodness, it is nearly a year yeah. ago. That would be tomorrow. So we're, we'll be coming into a new seventeenth of October. <laughs> first, an, uh, the, it'll be the seventh anniversary. There you go. It's been great to have you on the program, Susan. And really there's good. so much we haven't touched on, so I'll just have to come back. <laughs> you will. You're very welcome. <laughs> we'll, we'll have you back on. So, listeners, have been listening to. Local MP, Federal MP, member for Macquarie, Susan Templeman. Thanks very much, Susan, and we will have you on again.